Hi, Barry. Very, very nice to meet you again after I can four years maybe that we first met. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was almost exactly four years ago for breakfast. I, think. I, I remember I, that I was I was very very sick uh, that day. <laughs> But uh, yeah, uh, do you remember where that was? I, I do not remember. It was in Calabasas. Uh, you guys had played the previous night, and then we met up. But we, you know, we met for a little bit between sets and talked a little that evening. But then we had breakfast with Leonardo the next morning. Yeah. Are you so? Are, are you still working for Line Six? I am. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Although now it's um, part of the Yamaha Guitar Group. So, mm -hmm. and my job has changed completely since the last time we spoke. Um, But the Yamaha Guitar Group is Line 6, Ampeg, and all of the guitar and bass products for Yamaha. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, you know, like I, I first knew you as an artist, as a guitar player, as like a, a maker of, of uh, fantastic experimental music. And, um, and only then did I find out that you were writing for a guitar player magazine back then, right? And uh, and then later on, uh, you started working for Line Six. So that that's kind of like sort of that I know that little bit about you, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was a guitar player for 12 years, and um, with Nick's an electronic musician a little before that, an editor at all those publications, and then uh, I left guitar player kind of at the ideal time, you know, before the complete collapse of the publishing industry and. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Then I was doing you know a lot of freelance work and also writing uh, cues for a Warner um, production library and just you know kind of getting by in the gig economy there for a couple of years and then I was offered the job as a product marketing manager for Line Six, mm -hmm. which I could not say no to and I moved from San Francisco down to just north of LA to take yeah. that job. Yeah, and. Uh, great and I'm really happy with everything I was really fortunate to have that opportunity yes and I think that uh, at some point when when there were the fires uh, you you got lucky right your house did not burn down that's the lucky part yeah I was evacuated for three weeks and uh, it was yeah pretty brutal the fire literally stopped on the property line like right across wow. there's a link fence Mm -hmm. on the line and uh, on one side of it was grass mm -hmm. and on the other side of it was complete devastation and ruin as far as the eye could see so that was a pretty challenging time um, mm -hmm. I was fortunate I had good insurance and so my insurance company you know put me up and fed me and cleaned all my things and replaced a lot of stuff but there were many many people obviously who um, didn't fare as well Uh, mm -hmm. neighbor right above me's house is gone um, and then there was another huge fire that was happening uh, in Northern California at the time where many many people were killed mm -hmm. I don't think anyone actually lost their life or if it, maybe just one or two people in the fires here mm -hmm. as, as they were so all told I was extraordinarily fortunate uh, around the fire but yeah it was a real uh I found out about it around midnight. I had uh, taken a break. I was getting ready to go to 
sleep and I have a little toy hot tub out on the uh, edge of the canyon that I go sit in sometimes, look at the stars before I go to bed, have a glass of water. And I, was, I knew there was a fire burning in Thousand Oaks, which is on the other side of the, the ridge. I live up in the mountains by Malibu. It's amazing. And I was watching the smoke, and I could see the red from the, uh, the light from the fire coming over the edge. And then suddenly there were actual flames coming over the edge. Oh, and uh, that was a few miles away, but the Santa Ana winds were blowing fiercely and so I loaded all my stuff into my car, packed every inch of it, and took off. And uh, I was driving through, you know, areas where they were on fire, essentially. Never a danger, but it was just a, it's, I'd keep driving thinking I was going to get out of it, and it, the fire was just everywhere. Um, the interesting thing about that was trying to decide of all my belongings what I would bring with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I packed my master tapes. You know, our recordings, uh, my journals that I've been keeping since I was a kid, obviously some guitars and things and hard drives and uh, my best wine. <laughs> priorities in order you know so <laughs> oh, that's it's interesting that you list these uh, things because um, I, I experience you as a, a person who's uh, very much like interested in uh, in many many different things and sort of also passionate about about a variety um, of things and like one um, so f- like your your love for music technology and the history of music technology for example I find very interesting then the, your guitar side I don't I don't think I've I've talked with you much about your you being a guitarist much and right. like 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 right now like we we will be on uh, uh the new Stefan Thelen album together right mm-hmm. um and so we need to talk about that but like my question is really so um um what would you say is like your is like your um the the major major passion in your life is that music is that writing or is that uh uh music technology or wine or (laughs) (laughs) Um, at one time in my life quite a long time ago wine was probably my primary passion and I had a huge collection and I was really into it studying it and visiting the wine country all the time Mm -hmm. those days have passed because the wines that I love to drink now are exorbitantly expensive and only rich people can afford them so I'm kind of out of that game by default but uh Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, the thing that brings the most um, enjoyment and excitement and inspiration to me is just working on music, no matter what it is. Um, And particularly the improvisational aspects, the the idea that you, um, one minute, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. And then a half an hour later, there's something. And sometimes it's really great. And it's just those moments where you play something back that just happened and you just think, where in the world did that come from? Yeah. And you know, how fortunate am I to be living a life where this happens? You know, where I have access to this ecstasy in a way. So that's probably it. The, the gear stuff, not so much. I mean, I've, I've had a, sort of the same things for a long time um you know some things change out but i play basically one guitar and i've been playing the same guitar forever and 
I do have a few other guitars, but I hardly ever use them. Mm-hmm. I had a beautiful um, 1969 Les Paul Custom with um, 1959 PAFs and knobs uh, on it that I'd had since I was a kid. I sold it because I never played that guitar, and I just felt guilty about keeping it under my bed and pulling it out and showing it off to people. Mm-hmm. It's like somebody who's making good music should have that instrument, and you know. So that's a kind of an example so of what. What's your What's your main instrument at the moment? It's a uh, 2004 PRS uh, Custom 24 Brazilian. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just a regular Custom 24, but it has a Brazilian. Uh, rosewood fingerboard and some mm-hmm. fancy stuff on the headstock and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's actually a little fancier than i would have necessarily liked um if you want to hear the story behind that it's it's kind of fun uh i had reviewed the guitar for guitar player and the conclusion that i came up or they the conclusion i had was that it was maybe a perfect guitar there was nothing I could find nothing to report about it that I didn't love. It played beautifully. It played in tune perfectly, intonation. Everything was just incredible, sounded fantastic. But it's a pretty expensive guitar. And at the time, I was still playing the Les Paul. And I had another PRS, actually, a, a less expensive one. And so I, but I kept the guitar under my bed. Um, I never sent it back. Okay. And I guess in the back of my mind, I was hoping that no one would ask for it again and that I would just get to keep it, but I wasn't going to play it because I didn't want to mess it up and have to pay for it. <laughs> but over the course of about a year, I kept pulling it out, and it got more frequent that I would pull it out and look at it and play it, and I was thinking, oh, I really like this guitar. And then one day, uh, I went into the office with another guitar, and somebody asked if it was the PRS. I said, no. They said, well, um, they called, and they want the guitar back. In fact, they sold it, and they want you to overnight the guitar back oh. Oh. <laughs> and I, I guess the look on my face was just, you know, I was crushed. And uh, the guy who was talking to me saw that. He, he was perceptive enough. And so uh, we packed it up and I sent it back. And the guy at PRS, and I won't give his name because he might get in trouble, but the guy at PRS called me the next day and he said, you know, um, thanks for sending this back, but it's got a horrible ding in the back of it. You know, I can't sell it. Oh. <laughs> and I said, uh, you uh no it's in he goes like barry you're not understanding me it has a horrible ding <laughs> Put it off my hands for half price you'll be doing me a big favor and that's guitar. oh it's, that's a wonderful story <laughs> and it's just it does everything i needed to do so yeah you know, uh, you know some some um some things that like need to need to uh be together, they'll come together eventually, you know. <laughs> so that guitar really belonged to you then. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it came that close to not belonging to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, wonderful. Yeah, so um, um, I, as you know, I'm kind of like associated with, with Moon June Records now, uh, with, mm-hmm. you know, Leonardo Pavkovich kind of became uh, the, uh, well, booking agent first of all for stickman and uh so he discovered me and and like your i think the first album that i like really really listened to of yours was the hologrammatron or gamaton or uh yeah yeah album and that was released on moonjoon records i i recently found out i wasn't i wasn't aware of that uh anymore so so how how did you meet leonardo 
Well, that's a good question. Probably through Alan Holdsworth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I crossed paths with Alan quite a number of times and got to be kind of friends with him. And um, as you know, Leonardo was basically responsible for reinvigorating Alan's career. You know, I think Alan did his greatest work in that time. So mm-hmm. uh, it was a beautiful thing. And uh, there were other things we crossed paths on, um, probably some stuff with Tony Levin and other, we just had, you know, people that we were both, uh, we both knew or were friends with. And uh, he had told me that he really liked the record. He, at that time, you know, Moonjin was kind of just getting started. He had, mm-hmm. uh, this was 10, 11 years ago. He advised me to try to he said he liked the record enough. He advised me to try to put it out on a bigger label. Mm-hmm. And so I did some shopping and things. And um, I just was not able to find a deal that I thought was right. You know, a label that was right, or they were not interested in it or something. And uh, then he said, well, let's put it out together. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really happy with that. You know, he's an outstanding human being in every regard. And Moonjin's um, a great label. And, you know, he has people like you on it. So, um, yeah, he's one of my favorite human beings in the world, all the world. So, wow, it's I was really, really, really happy about that. He's he's really a special person, and uh, he 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 has this uh, this gift to be like the big connector of like so many uh, people and really amazing good people, right? That he kind of like pulls together with his personality. It's uh, just wonderful, yeah, and. Uh, and yeah, so it's uh, it's uh, interesting that after all these years that um, uh, my my old friend Stefan Thelen, who started to record these uh, fractal guitar albums, and uh, asked me, actually I think I was the, probably the first guy he asked to contribute with him on that project a few years back for fractal guitar one, which you know that's going to be a fractal guitar two, and um, so how how did you uh, and Stefan connect? So I, I don't know. <laughs> Question. Um, I don't, <clears throat> maybe through Bernard. Um, I'm sure I reviewed a Sonar record. I loved Sonar and we did some stories. I can't recall whether I did the Sonar story for a guitar player or whether Neil Prasad did that one. He used to write a bunch of stuff for us. Um, yeah, yeah. Before I left there. And then of course when I left, he left too. Um, I do recall uh, Stefan came to my home in Redwood City uh, about five years ago, something like that. And uh, we hung out and had a great time talking. And um, yeah, uh, I think things just, we stayed in touch one way or another over that time for various reasons. And then um, he was generous enough to ask me to contribute to the record. Mm-hmm. Which I was, you know, thrilled to do. So, yeah. so many of my, you know, favorite musicians are on those those record, and then they went too, um, you know, including you. It's 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 an incredible. I, I really enjoyed uh, working on that on that project. Like it's, um, I think for me it's sort of like the best of both worlds. Like it has the qualities of his band Sonar, you know, which is cool. But then it also has more that that painting with sound aspect to it as well, which both you and I kind of like, uh, you know, like stand for a little bit, right? And it's, uh, yeah, and I mean, here we're, we're basically 
like you said that maybe the your, your favorite thing is to about music is that well, you have like this with improvisation or even writing doesn't matter like any any sort of like like getting sound out right is is extremely uh, satisfying because you go from having nothing to having something right like in an in an instant and it's just it's just if it's it's kind of like i really don't normally use that 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 expression but it is it is an expression right of of some kind um to 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 make noise and i think it's it's probably something very very primal um you know like with the, with your voice or grunting or <laughs> something like that mm-hmm. and and we just do that with uh with guitars and with electronics with with pedals and uh making a noise and looping technology and and you know especially with looping technology that it's very it's very uh immediate you have the immediate feedback from what you've recorded it's being played back to you and inspires you to to create more right absolutely so you you have you have experience and at least like you're you're I, I i don't know so much about joe meek but i know that you wrote book and uh we've talked about that briefly uh when we met so so there is a long history of um musical inventions and i think there was like joe meek and i mean the only other guy i know a little bit about is les paul uh, yeah. With his multi-tracking and his the kind of looping that he did, right? So it's 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 a very rather old concept, uh, and and I, I guess you know you know much more about the uh, the development of these um, ideas, let's say over the years, and uh, it would be wonderful if you could you could tell us a little bit about what you know and what you've experienced in your lifetime about the you know like the. Uh, yeah, they, how how did these these uh, ideas develop over time? Uh, you mean historically with other people or with me personally? Uh, well, with you personally, first of all, yeah. Okay. Well, first let me mention. It's funny you would you would uh, bring up Les Paul. Um, one of the things that I do with my job with uh, Yamaha Guitar Group is I've uh, launched uh, a blog called Model Citizens. And it's not a typical corporate blog. I'm truly trying to go make it be more like a uh, online publication of interest to anybody who's involved in music or recording. The most recent post I just put up yesterday is uh, about Les Paul and his oh. sound on recording. So uh, if anybody wants to go to a blog dot line six, you can find this story. Mm-hmm. Um, briefly, what it's about is, you know, Les Paul, it's so funny when he passed away in uh, 2009, we did a, a whole issue of Guitar Player, you know, devoted to him. And then there were all these obits and things that were happening everywhere. And the two things that everybody says over and over is he invented the solid body electric guitar and he invented multi-track recording, neither of which is even remotely true. Mm. Um, but the things that he did do are so much more, you know, extraordinary than either of those things. And, um, so I think that's, there's just some confusion around semantics and things. People mm-hmm. think multi-track, you know, they think, oh, discrete tracks on a recorder. And then Les Paul was involved in some way with the development of an actual eight-track tape recorder, uh, one of only two um, uh, that were in existence. But he never used that on it. None of the hit records that he made uh, 
either by himself or with Mary Ford. Not a single one of them was done on that. And in fact, a lot of them weren't even done on tape. Mm-hmm. So the uh, what this article is about is <laughs> amazing stuff. Like so, in um, 1947, 40, late 47, he finished up what he called his new sound recordings, where he's using two um, disc cutting machines, like acetate discs, large discs, and he's bouncing back and forth between them, doing sound and sound, and it's unbelievable. And the and the things that he's doing, he's got like stuff that's you know, sped up an octave higher or lower. So he's recording, he's got no metronome or anything. So he's, he bangs out the time on the guitar and he knows that it, once he's layered like 20 tracks, certain things are going to fall into the background and you're going to lose high frequencies. And he plans all this out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So he bangs out the time and that's his drum. And then, you know, he'll slow the waves down half speed so he's playing along, playing melodies, and f- his phrasing and everything is, you know, it's an octave down. So you're playing along to <laughs> and playing it in a way that then when he puts it back to normal speed, it's perfect. You know, the phrasing, everything is perfect. Mm-hmm. That is, un- that's not normal human activity. You know, this guy mm-hmm. is supernatural in that regard. And then he eventually starts doing it like the um, Bing Crosby and gave him a, uh, Ampeg's 300, one of the earliest, um, you know, it's a mono tape recorder. And then one of the very first things he does is stick another head on it so that he can have it loop back in and do sound on sound recording on one machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so stuff like that, that's really makes him so great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was, this is a weird thing. So he was uh, the Joe Meek's hero. And I don't know, if people watching know who Joe Meek is, it's worth checking him out. Uh, at least Google him and, and or go up to YouTube and try to find some things to listen to, or you can buy my book. But um, he was fascinated by Les Paul, but Les was super secretive and he never let anyone, even his wife, know what he was doing. He had his garage studio and it was just absolutely top secret. So Meek had to figure this stuff out by listening you know, and kind of reverse engineer it from the recordings. And he was doing really similar things. Um, and where it gets really, and Meek was also pioneering a lot of stuff like Les did. So like he made a spring reverb out of a broken fan in the fifties, you know, way before the yeah. uh, spring reverbs were, you know, developed by Premier or uh, the other folks. And then he was tape flanging in 57. Mm-hmm. People think that started in 1967 with Ichiku Park. It's that, you know, not even close. He was the first guy to put to close mic things in England um, to use compression and um, limiting in a creative way instead of a corrective way. Uh, he basically broke all the rules. Um, but he also wrote songs, like really sappy kind of, you know, he wanted to write hits, like pop hits. And in the 50s, early 60s, that's what, what the hits were. Les Paul and Mary Ford recorded a song called Put a Ring on My Finger that he had written under the pseudonym. They, they, they did all this stuff under pseudonyms so they could avoid taxes and weird, you know, copyright yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the money that was generated from that record is what Meek used in order to found his label. <laughs> and Les didn't know that when I talked to Les about it. 
he'd never even heard of Joe Meek. He thought Joe Meek was the gear, you know, that came out. Uh, 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 one of the guys that worked with Joe, you know, started this line of gear. And uh, when I told him all about the parallels about what he was doing, what Joe was doing, he said, uh, it just goes to show how somebody can be so close and yet so far away. Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's really interesting the way their two lives parallel because in most respects, they're completely the opposite of each other. Les was a musical genius, wonderful guitar player, innovative guitar player. Joe Meek was tone deaf, you know, couldn't sing to save his life, couldn't play anything. Um, there's great recordings of him, like he'd do demos and give them to the, his band, his house band to do where he's just caterwauling, you know, it's horrible. It's not even listenable. But the band, which included Richie Blackmore at many, for many of the recordings, would listen to that noise and turn it into something. Mm -hmm. Anyway, both fascinating characters. Les Paul, the way it connects to me is when I was a little kid, meaning like four years old, my parents had an old Les Paul and Mary Ford record. And it had a picture of Les on the front with his beautiful Les Paul guitar, you know, just sweet looking guitar. And I fixated on that. And I loved the sounds like Tiger Rag and uh, a bunch of the other tracks on there that really appealed to me. And I, I think listening to those sounds, all the like bizarre sounds that he got, did something to my little impressionable brain, you know, and just, um, I just never got over that. And I'm kind of still there, you know, it's the same thing. Um, so I guess that's where they cross in. And then um, this is going to sound really strange, but uh, I also, when I was a tiny little kid, maybe even younger than four, I had a, a record called, um, was it a Walt Disney record? It was about Ludwig von Drake. Ludwig von Drake's a duck. And there's a part of it where he goes in the recording studio and he's talking all about recording and he's talking about the echo chamber and he goes in the echo chamber and there's this gag about how the echo chamber is filling up with water and all this stuff. I'm pretty sure that had some sort of wow. perversion <laughs> my brain as a little kid too. Like what's an echo chamber? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So as soon as I started playing guitar, I mean, the very first gig that I ever played that I can remember is I was in junior high school and they were having a, a happening, a psychedelic happening, which that kind of stuff actually took place back then. Mm -hmm. And I had an Ampeg um, Gemini 2 amplifier, which had reverb and vibrato. And I think at that time I had a, a Greco semi-hollow sort of ES-335 style, but, you know, phony guitar, mm -hmm. but it had a Bigsby on it. And I think all I did is they had a black light because it was the psychedelic happening. I put a sheet over a chair, put my amp on top of the sheet in the chair so that it would glow white all around it, turn the reverb all the way up and probably the, you know, tremolo or whatever it was too. And I'm wanging on the bar, you know, and just making weird noise for about 10 minutes. That's pretty much been the template of my entire career. Right <laughs> uh, how old were you? Well, uh, like ninth grade. So, okay. Uh, young. Yeah, I had just got, you know, the instruments, and that's about all I could do. Uh, that that's a beautiful beginning, though. Like for me, it was sort of like the opposite with like classical training, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, like the the sound aspect of music came into my life much later. Yeah, in my mid twenties. Mm -hmm. 
early 20s, mid 20s. So you were playing classical guitar? Yeah, well, I had my first uh, classical guitar lesson on the 3rd of uh, September uh, 1987. Mm. (laughs) I remember that. And uh, it felt late, I have to say. Like, because I was already into music for, say, maybe almost all my life, but, like, I became sort of conscious of music when I was around 10, when I realized it's something that speaks to me. And then, like those five years um, before I actually had a proper guitar lesson, like looking back, feels like a very long time. Um, and I'm still wondering. I'm still wondering what did I do? Right? I guess I listened to music a lot. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, but but then once I had the um, the guitar lessons, everything kind of like f- uh, fell into place. I I at that point I never I never had to practice because I was sort of like like talented enough, let's say, to to understand how the, the notation works and then how to play. And um, at that point, I didn't understand that there is something uh, like that practice would actually help <laughs> as I was, I was too young. Uh, but like I, never, I did not have that um, approach, this immediate approach of, of making that noise. You know, that was something that was sort of uh, uh, came much later, like what you just described, you know, like you have like the, the guitar as a, as, as like something very, uh, very, uh, what's the word? The opposite of, uh, well, just something that comes from the inside, like just like the, like the primal thing we were talking about, right? For me, it was something cu- cultured the way that it was taught to me, right? Right, right, sure. So were you listening to primarily classical music or what, what kind of music were you surrounded by when you were developing? Uh, it was what is nowadays called classic rock was probably what I heard the most in, on the radio in the 70s. And my mother was a fan of like the Eagles and we had a couple of Beatles albums. And uh, so like the uh, then later on, like maybe late 70s, early 80s, like some Fleetwood Mac. Um, and uh, yeah, then I and uh, I... I I, my my uncle and my mother took me to a Mike Oldfield concert in '82, when I was, you know, close to ten years old, and that changed my life. That was really like for me that was the template, you know, of like an artist who is, who is composer, producer, guitarist, like doing everything himself. Sort of uh, that was the kind of the blueprint for what interested me in music, and also like somebody who is not really uh, uh, stylistically. Uh, fixed you know not not you know like right. doing all sorts of things and that's sort of like my that's sort of how i feel about my my music and my career that i'm basically interested in music as a concept and not as a genre or a style or uh, uh not even uh a certain area of the arts you know i think it's just it just encompasses everything for me right right have you always been as prolific as you are no, it was it's it's just something that just came came with time. I mean, I have to I have to admit that um, yes, probably because when I was at this about the same time, like when I was nine years old, uh, my father had a really uh, bad accident and almost died, and mm-hmm. and so everything in our family changed. Like I I basically in a way kind of lost my parents overnight because they didn't have time for me anymore, right? And mm-hmm. I remember that that was the, the moment when I sort of like started uh, becoming really interested in music and it sort of took 
it became sort of a guide to me, like a, you know, like a parent to me in music, I would say, even though I, I also had my grandmother who was, was a great person, but somehow music took that role. And so from that point on, I already had this, I don't want, I wasn't really prolific, but I already had a vision, let's say. And that's why I said earlier that these five years between, you know, the accident my father had and actually then starting to learn a guitar instrument properly um, feels like a long time now looking back. And I really have to say it's, it's, it's insane. It's kind of, well, insane, crazy that I don't, don't remember anything uh, about those years. So. Yeah, although I don't think that's unusual. No. How was how that for you, like your, your youth? Do you, do you remember? Um, I do remember some things. Um, I was really lucky. My, my brother is 10 years older than I am. And so when I was really young, um, he was constantly listening to music. He had a big collection. He listened to the radio nonstop. And so I was inundated with um, music that was really, like of all types, mostly what passed for pop back then, but it could be anything, you know, it could be psychedelic music, it could be anything. It didn't matter, it was all on the radio, really. They didn't differentiate like they do now. And uh, so I guess when I was really tiny, like just porn, basically, I was surrounded by British invasion and 60s music. And um, then I think where I got really the most interested was um, listening to the Beatles because that the Beatles dominated reality, you know, for the time that they were together. It was like everybody looked to them. I mean, I mean, collectively the, the culture did. I was a little too young to be looking at anybody for much of anything, but um, that music, particularly when you got off to like Magical Mystery Tour and uh, or even earlier, you know, Revolver or um, it started to get into more like sound design and mm -hmm. um, uh, bringing in other elements besides just, you know, banging away on some guitars and bass and drums. Uh, that, I think, had a huge influence on me. And then one of the very first, I think the very first concert I ever saw was Iron Butterfly. Mm -hmm. And Iron Butterfly, for all of the, you know, you can make fun of them all you like, and it's all totally justified. But the guitar player, Eric Braun, I think he was 17 years old or something back when they were, you know, at their height. He used fuzz and reverb and, you know, uh, wah pedals, anything that was available. Uh, and he was a classically trained guitar player. And so there's a lot of that, these motifs that it worked into his style. And um, I loved his tone and the sound. So... The music's mostly unlistenable now because the singing is so <laughs> terrible, but um, and the lyrics are kind of stupid. But the guitar playing is just, I think, wonderful, and that had a major impact on me watching somebody do that live. And I saw Led Zeppelin, and they were by that time, you know, doing um, similar things, you know, where they're really processing things a lot. And that side of the music always really appealed to me. Um, and then. I think the thing that probably changed my life the most in terms of music was I saw King Crimson in 1974, 73 or so, 73 maybe, 
it was um, right after Jamie Muir had left back mm-hmm. in the Larks Touch band. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a very, you know, young, impressionable lad. And that concert, it's impossible to describe it. I mean, unless you were there, it, it, the music was, of course, extraordinary. But it was this tangible force that was in the hall. It was like a, I felt like the ether was going to open up, you know, and like another dimension was going to emerge. I mean, it was just, it changed my life. And it wasn't just me because I went with my friend Brett and his brother Jay. And Jay at that time was close to death with muscular dystrophy. He was in a wheelchair and we brought him to the show. Uh And at the end of the concert, Jay said, if I die tomorrow, my life will have been worthwhile now having seen this. That's the level of impact that it had on us. And I just, my life was never the same after that. Um, So, and I saw, you know, Hey, let me let me ask you something about that. So you you were talking about this 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 energy, right? Was that was that energy uh, um, there even before the band played, or was it was it was there the expectation? Was there some sort of expectation that already set the mood? Do you remember that? Um, that's a good question. No, I'm pretty sure. I mean, we had already heard the record, Larkstungs, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. I remember that was a... I had loved the previous King Crimson records, and every one of them was so different. Mm-hmm. You know, just, you know, it was, a, it was a, such a huge part of my early life. But um, the Larkstung record kind of freaked us out. You know, it starts really <laughs> super quiet, mm-hmm. and you turn the volume way up, like, what's going on with this record? And then all of a sudden, it just blows the walls down. So we were still trying to assimilate that. Like, what exactly is this? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so radically different than anything else that you know, had been done under that name. Uh, but I remember from the very beginning of it, they opened with um, Dr. Diamond, mm-hmm. which I'd never heard the song before. And it was, you know, they kept changing that up. If you go back and listen to the, you know, all those archival recordings, it's, there's like 10 different versions of it. Yeah. This one was just, I don't know. I do remember that. So the very beginning, the lights come up and they start with that riff. And but mostly what I remember are the improvisations and the, the energy. I mean, there was a kind of um, medieval magical um, quality around the image of that group too, you know, like wearing the, the uh, occult symbols and all of the things that were involved with Mm-hmm. And so I think we were kind of sucked into that a little bit. And had, <laughs> so to that extent, we came in with expectations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so in my imagination, I'm thinking, you know, like what sort of energy would be associated with that? That may have colored it. But the primary thing was just, like I said, it was, it was tangible. It was like you could touch it almost. And I, I can't, words fail, you know, and I make a living yeah. with words. And I can't even begin to tell you what this was like, mm-hmm. but um, it just—it was transformational on every level. It wasn't just like, "Oh, this is cool music. I'm inspired." It was like it rearranged the molecules in my soul. You know, it was yes. like, a, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was a pivotal experience. And I saw the group again like a year later, and there was not that same thing. They were great. You know, they were really great. And if I hadn't had that earlier experience, I would have just raved similarly about that show. 
But there was something special about this one and that I've seen different incarnations of the band over the years and they're all great. Um, I saw the, um, I saw the discipline group shortly after they changed their name, you know, to King Crimson, they played in a little club in San Francisco. I was like, you know, five feet away. There was no stage mm-hmm. They're set up on the floor, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that show, I mean, I remember I went with my the woman I was living with, Kathy, then, and we were just, we just kept looking at each other. Like, did that just happen? You know, like this is, <laughs> these guys are fantastic, but it was a different kind of fantastic. You know, it was, um, just as powerful and amazing, but it didn't have that otherworldly quality that the one show had. I guess that's the best, I mean, it's a cliche word and doesn't mean anything probably, but yeah. that's the best descriptor. There was something that was not normal about that. It was like alien to anything I'd ever experienced. And it was almost apart from the music, but the music was the source. So like, they'd be improvising on something and then suddenly it would take off in some other direction. Like they just, you know, move like a flock of birds and you'd feel that it would pick up, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it was being radiated from the stage for sure. Mm-hmm. And then amplified by the audience because the audience begins to feel that, you know, everybody feels that it's not something that's a special elite group or anything. It's no matter who the audience are, when that magic thing is happening, it's universal. Everybody knows it's there. And this was a special case of that, where it was a, a, a select audience. I mean, the kind of audience that would come to this show in St. Petersburg, Florida, mm-hmm. uh, and um, that could that had the expectation or the capacity to resonate with that um, sort of thing. So it was a reciprocal amplification thing, I'm sure. But it did seem, as I recall, as best I can, you know, this is a long time ago, um, <laughs> it did seem to move and change with the music, you know, and the bands feeling it too, you know, they start to move. It's not like they're up there casting spells, you know, they're in the flow of it and it would start to take off and they were just as surprised as anybody. Just like, wow, what was that? You know? So anyway, that's, yeah, it's, it's, it really can be a, a, a communal experience, right? Like the, when, as you say, like the, the band, creates the energy, the energy goes to the audience and comes back and we get almost get this kind of like feedback loop. And, and as we know, working with feedback, it can easily get out of control and things can, can uh, appear or, or emerge that uh, are totally fascinating. And you cannot, you cannot, uh, it's, there's no way you can replicate the same factors, uh, you know, at a different time, different place with different people. And, and, uh, so does it does a recording exist of that show? Um it's funny you'd ask that. <laughs> There's a recording that claims to be that, but what it actually is, and it's funny, um it's the rehearsals. And the this was recorded by my friend Steve, who was an usher, he was working at the Bayfront Center where this took place. He had his little cassette recorder out there and he was recording stuff and there's a part at the end where somebody comes up and tells me he has to turn it off like they you know they, they force him to turn it off and he's arguing with them for a while you know long <laughs> enough to get as much of it as he can um but they're they're working out the riff of what became the great deceiver mm-hmm. so that tune's already being you know it's underway they're developing it during the rehearsals mm-hmm. um it's really fascinating because you can hear how they're trying out different ideas and things and you know, it's pretty far removed from where it winds up. 
but that masquerades under the title of this is the show with that date on it. So if you search, you know, through the bootleg okay. web, um, if you find that, it's not going to be it. Yeah, so uh, I, uh, I do have a recording of the show the following year in Curtis Hickson Hall in uh, Tampa. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great. But I think they were, um, part of the reason that one was kind of weird is because originally they were the headliners and tickets weren't selling well, so they brought Poco in and Poco became the headliner and Poco had a a giant banner by which I mean like hundreds of feet by hundreds of feet of a giant horseshoe and Poco, I think it was green Mm -hmm. and that was behind the band, you know, so (laughs) they were kind of annoying. That's awkward. (laughs) 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 So as, as you know, I think you know that uh, uh, David Cross joined Stickman uh, for, uh, you know, some one-off shows, but also for a tour in South America a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have to say uh, David's presence, I, I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't expect it, but he really has the crimson vibe. He has the vibe of that band. Like where, where really, like if you're if you're listening to the recordings and you're kind of like like the big stars of Fripp and uh, Wetton and and Bruford, right? In a way, and crosses like a little bit, but but like the way that he plays the mellotron chords, like the voicings he uses, and just just his skill of improvising uh, really brought so much to the band. So that. Uh, it was it was a real I have to say a real honor to play with him and also when we did that long longish tour in uh, South America, um, all the improvs, like I kind of like in a way I wanted them to be a little bit like the seventies scripts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Solo records are really good too. You know, he's just a remarkable. Yes. Musician. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I remember I had one of his solo records uh, pretty early on, um, testing for destruction or something. It's called. Mm-hmm. That was, um, yeah, yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Like these these experiences of the the power of music. I think it's it's. Um, I mean, it doesn't speak to everybody, right? Like we should not forget that. But uh, for a certain person, the music can be can mean everything and. And I, I mean, this has only recently come to my attention, but there's some sort of responsibility even, in a way, a little bit of a responsibility for musicians um, to uh, be some sort of... Because, uh, you you're, you know, a lot, of, a, a lot is being projected onto you when you're on stage creating that music, right? So, I, I, you know, there's one, one thing... Um, so it's not so much... It's not so much about how you play really i think it's really more about what you play like the material is very true for crimson right if you think about it it's it's that that partic- that kind of music no other band has ever played that kind of has played with that kind of sound and that that kind of uh musical uh building blocks and 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 the impact that, that these, as you know, if you've just described, the impact that they can have on young people is really, really, really immense. And um, so it's, um, 
you know, because they're just thinking back at the first first concert that I saw, the Mike Oldfield concert, of which there is there is a recording that I have a there's a bootleg recording of that very show. Uh, it's also on YouTube actually, and um, so just these musicians and the way they play also sort of become some sort of like a blueprint for what what one likes, right? And 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 that I find that really fascinating because I do I believe that it's not about I mean, I mean, in in this case, the band that was a great band with really great musicians. But I don't think it matters. It could have been, could have been sort of like, I don't want to say any band, but the power of music kind of transcends, um, transcends ability. Let's say it's not about that. Like, I I believe, I really believe that the power of music is very much beyond the the skill. It has nothing to do really with skill. It can yeah. have something to do with skill, but it doesn't have to, right? Right. Oh, good point. I mean, right. think of. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about about you making the noises with, with for your very first show, right? <laughs> or everything else I do, because I don't consider myself to you know be a virtuoso musician by any right. stretch of the imagination. So, um, I try I try to scrape by on sound and. Um, yeah, I practice enough to be able to play some parts that I like, and that's about you know what I do. But, yeah, but but that's that's you know you can become an expert at that. You know, it just that's what I'm trying to say. It's not necessarily about how fast you can move your fingers, or that you're actually uh, you don't even need to be aware of what you're doing. It's just that you are open to kind of like express some sort of, and I kind of like break it down to the movement. Like in the end, it's some sort of movement you make that creates the sound. And, mm. and, 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 and really just to have the courage even to just make that movement and to just allow it to be, to be amplified, right? That's, that's really uh, uh, in a way what, 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 um, what is necessary, right? To go from nothing to something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, a lot of it is, you know, after a lot of what I do is um, post-production. I mean, it's, it's not the actual performance of it. Mm -hmm. So the performance of it is once I have that down, I'm, you know, I get to something that I'm happy with. Um, that's the beginning of it. And then, you know, I usually wind up doing a lot of manipulation of different types, you know, which I've done my whole life. I mean, there's a, this is a weird story. So I made this, uh, how do we even tell this? So a Canadian record label um, named Morning Trip just released an LP version of the very first recording that I ever made. And I made it on, my, on a four-track cassette deck in my bedroom when I was a kid. And this was, it was released in 1986 on cassette by a Canadian label. I don't know what it is with the Canadian thing here. But uh, when my record Mythos came out on Very Fast label in 86, I was contacted by a bunch of people like, do you have anything else? And this guy from Canada uh, really was pressing me hard to come up with something. And I didn't have an album. That was the first serious record I ever made, you know, done in a real studio. And um, he was so persistent. And so I looked to find a bunch of recordings that were just sort of random things I'd been doing, you know, since I was really young. And I put together a collection of things and said, what do you think of this? Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, I love this. We're going to put this out as a record. 
<laughs> that cassette, I don't know how many of those things he made, but it's bizarre. It's like people would contact me every few years and say, can we release this on a record? You know, not like digital or CD. And I'd say, look, I don't even know where those recordings are. I have no idea. You know, this is a, it's not really an album. You know, I, I never intended that to be an album. I don't even know how they know about it. It must be because of these cassettes. And then strangely, when, uh, when uh, I did the deal uh, with these guys, I went back and looked through some old boxes of things and I found a, a whole box of these cassettes. I guess I had, a, it had like 30 of them in it and I didn't try playing them. They were all shrink wrapped. I put one up on eBay and in less than 24 hours, it sold for $45. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, these guys are not as silly as I thought. You know, there's something out there. They can, they're going to make some money on this. Sadly, none of the cassettes played anymore. They were oh. damaged. And so I had to give the guys 45 bucks back, but it made the point that there's some value. Um, then, strangely, uh, one of the labels, this was about six years ago, a label that was kind of a legitimate label, also wanted to do this. And so I put together, I went back and I found every little bit of, you know, the, the best quality versions of all of these tracks. And uh, I wrote up like liner notes and did some sorts of things. And um, we were all ready to go. And then I just... I'd even signed the contract with this guy, but I just got a really strong readout on my douchebag meter. You know, it was like, <laughs> sorry to introduce that term into your podcast. Um, but this guy was not happening. And I just said, you can sue me, you know, if you want. I'm breaking the contract. You can't put my thing out. So I shelved it, but I had everything ready to go. Mm -hmm. Then a couple of years later, I took all of my um, analog recordings, uh, you know, mostly a bunch of two-inch, 16 and 24-track, stuff, but also the quarter inch half track, you know, uh, and half inch reels. I took them into fantasy studios in Berkeley and they baked the tapes and transferred them all over to uh, Pro Tools at high res. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, on a bunch of the reels, they weren't accurately um, uh, indexed. And I found about half of these recordings, the original half track, you know, analog masters. So suddenly I had a pretty good collection of stuff. And then when these guys came and asked if they could put it out, I said, yeah, you got to give this to a, a serious mastering engineer. So it went to uh, this guy, Noah, Noah, something in Toronto. Great sound restoration and mastering guy. And he turned these recordings into something that actually sounds fantastic. Wow. <laughs> Stunning. Um, but anyway, circling back to where this started, the, manipulating things. I mean, what I did with it is on this little four track cassette thing, it had a speed control. Mm -hmm. So you could turn it down, I think, um, at least an octave down, octave up or anything in between. And then it recorded four tracks onto a cassette in one direction. So you could turn the cassette over and it would play in reverse. Yeah. And so I used those things and um, I was bowing the guitar, doing a lot of stuff. I had an Echoplex and a God knows what else. And um, uh, I just, I pushed that thing to its maximum. You know, so a lot of these recordings, they incorporate, it's the same sort of thing that we do now with a looper where you're, you know, dropping things an octave or pushing them up or changing the speed. But it was all done manually back then. And by flipping stuff around, 
but there's things on that recording that are very much I'm still really happy with, you know, even though I made them when I was a kid, it's because it's the, you're just taking what you have and, 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 and you hear something in your head and you figure out how can I do that with what I've got? And even if it's really primitive like this, you know, or the other way around, you have the technology and you just think, okay, what can I, you know, how can I use this to at this end that I have to, to make something that's interesting. And you just keep fooling around with it until you get something. Um, but I go back and listen to those things. And I think, you know, this is, it's kind of like the junior high school performance. You know, I listen to these really crude early things, relatively speaking crude. And I just think that's the same thing I do now. Yeah. Well, I'm using all kinds of amazing plugins and just, you know, incredible stuff now, but it's nothing's changed. Yeah, And I still get the same thrill now doing this that I did then. I'm seeking that. That's what the payoff is, particularly now that you can't. I mean, you make money playing music because you tour and do things. and you. But I don't make any money doing music. You know, it's just not, that's not a motivator for me. Yeah, I make money on the little cues, you know, they use on the TV shows and stuff. But, um, you know, not, I don't make records with the idea that, you know, this is going to be some sort of financial, there's a financial reward to it. It's just labor of love. And the things that motivate that haven't changed. Yeah. My whole yeah, you're, you're raising a really, really important point. I, I don't know if everybody's like that, but at least for me, I always, I used to think I w I'm not good enough. Or I used to think I'm, you know, it's like what I did was maybe not, sounding good enough or it, it it's a good motivator you know to believe you kind of like uh need to work it's and practice or whatever um but i have to say i completely agree with you if i listen to like just even like my very first recordings it's me and i was already a complete artist back then and i was a good player and everything was already in place not saying that I have been standing still, definitely not, but the artistic expression, let's say, like what I, the, my heart or my, my soul even, like maybe that's a better word, that was always present and that was always there and it is always, there's this, this one little story which I sometimes remember and I just remembered it, <laughs> is that I... Uh, um, had to drive with a bi bicycle uh, about 20 miles to get to a, a proper music store where they had uh, bass amps and uh, guitar amps and guitars and basses and even a section with drums. And, and I remember that the very first time I actually plugged the bass guitar into an amp, I played one, I, I played one note in the room. And there was, I remember the people in the room turning around looking at me or looking at the sound that was coming instrument okay so that's nothing special right like in a way but about maybe 15 years later i befriended one of the, the guys who used to work in that store when i was there and i played that note and he said to me 15 years later marcus when i heard you play that note i knew you were a real musician 
Mm. There was something about it, he said. It, you, uh, it mm. was just that one note, but there was something about it. And it gave me goosebumps then, it gives me goosebumps now, thinking about that. That, you know, maybe there's something about the... Uh, and this is kind of like what pro maybe people call talent or, you know, like that's the gift that maybe some people have just mm. to just to uh, f find, you know, the, that I was I was allowed to find... The, the the medium or the material I I was destined to work with somehow you know I don't I don't know if that's true but it's sort of like this this little story that I find fascinating uh, interesting you know the <clears throat> the thing that occurred to me when you were talking about it is that there's meaning in that note mm -hmm. and people can play you know there's a lot of virtuoso players you think particularly of many classical musicians extraordinarily talented you know but um and this is i'm not i don't mean to sound judgmental towards classical musicians i have the greatest respect for classical musicians but um having tried to improvise or play with a few um with one really notable exception um there i have had conversations with people that just say look you know i can play any score i can do anything i'm you know I'm great. I can't write something or I can't even play. I can't even just casually play something and improvise that I haven't ever played before, you know, something that's my own. Mm -hmm. And there's a real concern about, it. I mean, they're sincerely concerned about it. Um, and it, the almost inescapable conclusion is that if you're too well trained in any particular thing, that that can not only be a, a wonderful thing that allows you to do all kinds of remarkable um, things, but it's also, it can be an impediment, you know, it can keep you from that. And so maybe what, you know, I so said, maybe the way, you know, what it says, can you just play one note, you know, with real, that's you, can you play one note that's you? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be anything else, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's a similar thing to what you're talking about. It's like, you know, there's a, um, you're obviously a virtuoso musician, but what makes your, to me, this is just my view, what makes you know your work in particular um, different than what I was just describing is that there's a, uh, there's meaning to it. Mm -hmm. That there's something, it matters that you played that note. Mm -hmm. And I can't say why that is, you know, it's an intangible thing, but it is something that people can like the guy that you talked to 15 years later, mm -hmm. they recognize it, you know? Uh, and you think of artists like, um, like Peter Hamill. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're a Peter Hamill fan. Peter doesn't make any claims to be a great pianist or guitar player. You know, in fact, when I interviewed him for Guitar Player Magazine, he was a little embarrassed. Like, why would you want to talk to me, you know? Um, but if you've ever seen him perform live, that's like, the last time I saw, I saw the reformed Van der Graaff generator um, play at, uh, in Montreal at the jazz festival mm -hmm. a while back. And I thought the, the roof was going to come off of the, the, you know, the theater. It was like, and these guys are not exactly spring chickens. <laughs> they were just, the energy was overwhelming, you know, and the audience was just freaking out. There was a, a girl sitting next to me who I was fortunate to kind of hang out with a little bit afterwards. Um, she, I guess, was in her 30s, and 
she knew every word to every one of his songs. The music had impacted her that strongly, you know, mm-hmm. generations later. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a perfect example of that. It's just like, it's totally transformative. And there's, I mean, those guys are great players. I don't, you know, but I, um, that's not the whole story. You know, it's not that they are good musicians. It's there's something else going on there. And the music, some of the most powerful stuff is some of the least sophisticated things that yes. they're doing. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like um, when you were talking about the, the classical players, the classical music performers, I think there's also like, you know, like probably those who were, who never want to be an artist, let's say. So where maybe there was never the motivation to, uh, to be inventive, let's say, right? Where, and like, I know one, uh, one female uh, piano player and she, she's amazing, but she said to me, like, she wants to serve the composer. That's what, what she does. She doesn't even want to have her own, uh, she doesn't even want to influence the music in some kind. In some kind. She does, obviously, but she doesn't want to. And, and I found that interesting. And I think that there are just probably, and this is kind of like the sad case, is when there are actually people who become uh, great classically trained players, Uh, who actually originally come from the same place that I come from, where it's like the love for music, right? And somehow the training sort of kills that original motive, motivation in you. That's I find that sad. Um, and that was like one of the, one of the, I could say few or many things that Robert Fripp taught me, like where he said, like, you don't, don't go to a conservatory. Like, like you said, like if you are if you are a professional musician, you're going to do it anyway. So you can learn something else and and be, you know. And he was absolutely he was absolutely right. I I I don't know what would have happened to me if I had professionalized um, my outlook on music, let's say, uh, as early as uh, you know when I was 19 or something. And um, yeah, yeah. So 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 for you. Um, And I, you know, I also spoke with uh, Michael Peters. Do you, are you aware of Michael Peters? This German, German loop, uh, loop guitarist. And... Played at some of the looping festivals. Yeah, I think in yeah, yeah. So he's great. And, and I asked him uh, a similar question because he was so, sort of also around for most of the development from, say, from the analog years to the dig- digital years, mm-hmm. um, or years or whatever. We don't know how long it's going to. Uh, be like that I, um, and I do, just in terms of like the music the uh, development of music technology let's say how do you see the uh, the development was there something like was the, dig- the invention of digital like a deep cut would you say it's a deep cut or was there how did that how did we go from the frippertronics with two tape loops from with two tape machines to uh, the Fripp in a box uh, and then to uh, the uh, Paradis uh, loop delay and so on. Um, do you, I'm sure you remember those times and can tell us a little bit about it. Um, well, I remember the, the Paradise uh, because I had a prototype that I used to record a bunch of stuff that's on my Memory and Imagination album. Um, yeah, that was, that was incredible. I mean, yeah. what a... What a quantum leap um 
I don't know. I mean, I played around with two tape recorders uh, for a while and, you know, very briefly um, tried that and mm -hmm. actually did some performing with it. I was using, a, I was playing electric guitar, but I was also playing like a 12 string acoustic guitar amplified, you know, doing okay. some stuff. It was an improvisational group of a guy named Michael Maisley. We um, called ourselves Thin Ice. <laughs> and we were entirely improvisational, like <laughs> no idea what we were doing. Great um, name. <laughs> and, they, and actually, the, one of the records we made is going to come out on this Canadian label next year, I think. And then Michael's record is coming out this year. Um, that's a whole other story. But uh, I do recall when the, uh, the Boss Digital Delay pedal came out mm -hmm. and thinking, okay, this could be something, you know, it's we could maybe use this in a, a different, not have to haul that junk around. And, but the delay time was so short on it. And then eventually there was a little um, Digitech, which went out to uh, two seconds. Mm -hmm. And that was like revelatory, except that it was kind of crap sound, you know, when you ran it out. So the transition, as I recall, as it impacted me, um, was a little bumpy in the beginning, you know, uh, then I was able to um, get a PCM42, a Lexicon PCM42, and that changed my life completely. It's just yeah. like, oh, my God, you know, this thing's incredible. Um, so. Did, did you get like one with a with a looping mod? There was one that was modded, right, to have the, I think, mm -hmm. like, I can't remember who it was, but uh, David Torn was probably one of the first who. Mm -hmm. Who had that? Right. Yeah, he had his modded. Um, I don't think. I think the one I had was just stock. It went out. If you ran it at uh, half, I think it was two. It was either two or four seconds, and then you could drop it to half, mm -hmm. and it would go out twice that far at greatly reduced bandwidth. The whole thing was only like eight K bandwidth anyway. The old Lexicon stuff, and I've had a like a Prime Time two and some of the other things and work with some of that ancient you know, gear in the studio back then. Um, the, the specs, when you look at them, were not very good. Mm -hmm. well, it sounds incredible. Yeah. It probably had something to do with the, um, I don't know, with the converters or something. Just uh, They just really knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, when, but the 42, when you ran it out to double time, it was pretty... Even for a guitar, which is a narrow bandwidth instrument anyway, it really didn't, it wasn't great. So I used it at the, the normal speed most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the it's so funny, the whole analog digital thing, it's, there's, I think, more neuroses around this thing, you know, or at least there used to be. Now it's, it's all merged together and nobody can really, you know, it doesn't really matter anymore. But except you do have these strange things like people talking about, we're going to have, I think it's a, you know, cassette culture and what's next, you know, eight tracks, we're going to do eight track releases. <laughs> um, but the LPs, you know, I think the, the, the weirdest thing about that is people are putting out like a lot of, you know, dance music, electronic music is released on, obviously released on LP. And people are going, oh, that analog warmth. And it's like, you do realize, of course, that the only thing analog about this is the vinyl, you know. Yeah, exactly. 
But you know what? What what I still find fascinating that the the time between mid seventies and mid eighties, you can almost like by the sound of a record, you can mm. sort of tell which year it was, because mm. you can say okay, like in eight, let's say in eighty two, you had maybe the Fairlight on it, but mm -hmm. you did you did not have a, a digital re reverb on it. But then mm. in eighty three, you had the you had the digital reverb already. And mm -hmm. but the the say the fairlight was already out of fashion and not true but like just just saying you could like just by 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 observing which sounds have been used uh, which which Ooh. drum machine had just come out you could really you could date the recording simply by the by the sounds used and and that sort of has changed right because like they're like the tools. Uh, well, I may, may I, you know, I'm not so uh, deeply into popular music, so maybe what I'm saying is is bullshit, okay? But <laughs> but that that was the time where 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 music technology was changing at such a pace where you could really you could you could date the albums. Okay. Well, not only that, I mean, when the DX7 came out, people oh, yeah. used it for everything, and they didn't bother for the for the most part to even make their own presets. So you just <laughs> Go, oh yeah, there's preset thirty-two. That's preset seventy-two. Yeah, yes. I hear that Schiffer flute thing one more time, and I'm gonna hurl chunk. You know, it was just, um, yeah. But the, like you say, the reverbs, you know, and the delays, the AMS changes everything. You know, there's just certain sounds that um, are a harmonizer. You know, yes, the even tied harmonizers. You can tell when they do the jump from one model to the next one. Yes. You know, if you're listening for that kind of stuff, um, it it used to really put me off when I listened to a soundtrack. Like I remember, well, what was it like Solaris or uh, I I can't remember who the composer was, uh, Clive Martinez maybe, uh, <laughs> and he is always using this three against two uh, preset from the from the Eventide, <laughs> which like in every single soundtrack he does. Like from I don't know, like maybe the film Traffic or like one of those films, and you always hear the same kind of delay, and it used to put me off hearing these and knowing, okay, yeah, that is a guitar through that preset. <laughs> right, right. Fortunately, the public probably doesn't make that distinction no, so much, no. but but you know, absolutely. I mean, it's pretty easy. It, I think in that period, it's the easiest to do the forensic kind of work, you know, where you're. You can nail it right down, probably to the month of the year, based on what you're hearing. You know, in terms of effects and synth patches and things. But yeah. So the, the these, sorry. These days, I think it's all just blurred. You know, it's all gone. I mean, the like the emulations. Not that I'm an expert on synthesizers, or I owned a room full of expensive analog synthesizers or anything. But I do talk to people who do that, and the. The plugins, like the Arturia plugins of all the classic synths, the, the people who own the hardware tell me that they can hear a difference, but it's so minuscule. You know, it's it's not even most. It's irrelevant almost. It's statistically mm -hmm. insignificant. Um, that stuff just the idea that, especially if you buy them on sale once a year, um, you can get the whole collection and you have essentially a room full of the greatest synthesizers yeah. ever made. And they cost you a few hundred bucks. I mean, it's, I think the, the biggest problem you have now, and this is, you know, talked about endlessly is um, option overload. Yeah. You know, there's too, too many things. And 
I mean, I have, I have a lot of stuff. Fortunately, when I was working a guitar player, I was given things all the time. Mm -hmm. That's just part of the job. Mm -hmm. And I have so many plugins and virtual instruments and things. Many of them I have never even heard. Mm -hmm. I haven't even listened to them yet. Mm. You know, they're there. But um, occasionally I'll pull one up. I'll be looking through a menu and I'll go like, I wonder what that is. You know, I pull it up. And think, oh, my God, I've had this thing for, you know, eight years and never used it. It sounds you know, really it's, good. It's, it's the option overload, as you say. But I guess it's also because the haptic, the haptic aspect of having the hardware in your hand or the... Like, obviously, you can have a controller, but then the controller that you have is the same for the Minimoke and the uh, Prophet 5, right? And, yeah, no, that just doesn't cut it, right? Psychologically, like, human beings, we're different. Like, we... we uh, and that's why I think probably having a real uh, piece of, you know, synthesizer hardware from the 70s and you make music with that, it just has a different vibe because, because the interaction is different, you yeah. know? And I think that's really that's really what it's about. And that's why I still like guitar pedals, for example, right? Like that's why I'm still reamping through guitar pedals, because I can just as the signal runs through. First of all, I have this this magical thinking that you know the signal goes through the the cable and changes, right? <laughs> and uh, and then it goes through the pedal, and I can actually tweak as I record, and and that it's sort of like an echo. Uh, uh, like a uh, an add-on performance on whatever recording is already there. Like you said, like you you have your initial recording and then you then you mangle it, right? And uh, so, but um, Barry, let me just jump back now. So so talking about this, uh, like like the '80s and what you just did, and uh, um, so how and when did like your interest in Joe Meek actually? I, I mean, how did that happen at all? <coughs> um. <clears throat> it's um okay so <clears throat> excuse me i was working at mix magazine um and i'd only been there a little while i hadn't actually written much of anything I, or maybe it, no at that point i was working for electronic musician they were the same even the same building same group mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh i had written a cover story on digital mixers for electronic musician and the editor of Mixed Books, or not editor, but the owner of Mixed Books, basically, publisher, Mike Lawson, um, came to me and he said, I'm, we're releasing 10 new books next year. Do you want to write one? Hmm. And I said, uh, what would I write it about? And he goes, well, we could do it on, you know, I love that digital mixer thing. We could do the digital mixer book. Because Mixed Books were all educational recording books. That was the theme of them. And I said, yeah, but by the time you publish it, it'll be obsolete because this technology is moving so fast. Yeah. And somebody had loaned me a Joe Meek CD. Mm -hmm. um, and I hadn't even listened to it yet. It was just sitting on my desk. And uh, as a joke, I mean, I thought he was kidding me. I mean, I had never, I was just getting started in writing and publishing. The idea that he would ask me to write a book just seemed ridiculous. So I pointed at that and I go, I could write about this guy. And he goes, well, what's that? I said, oh, it's this, you know, this innovative producer, recording guy. And I didn't really know who he was. You know, I was just making it up. And uh, he goes, okay, we'll put together a proposal, you know, you know, for next week. We'll look at it. I thought he was kidding. You know, but I did do a little research into Joe Meek. And I realized that some of the people that he had worked with were still alive. Mm 
mm-hmm. and that maybe I could, you know, interview some people about him and find out what's going on. And so a week later, Mike comes back and he says, uh, okay, where's your proposal? I got to turn it in this afternoon. I said, are you kidding? I mean, this was real, you know? And, uh, and he goes, yeah, well, so what do you got? And I said, well, I did find some people that I could interview. He goes like, okay, here's what we'll do. So the book's going to be about, you know, working outside of the box, innovative things like Barry's bright ideas on working outside the box. And we'll use Joe Meek's stories as anecdotes. And he goes, now for your chapter titles, just put down the names of the people you think you'll be interviewing. So that was the proposal. And I found it just like a few months ago. It's funny. I was in some papers. Um, And then the next day it comes back with the contract. So I signed the contract and they give me the money. And then I got home and it's like all of a sudden the light bulb went on. Like, I love the idea of writing a book, but I got to write a book. Like, what is that? You know, (laughs) I don't know how to do that. So anyway, we started I started researching Joe Meek and it wasn't long. I contacted a guy who'd written a book on him. And then uh, there was a guy at the British Museum, Sound Archives and some other people that I talked to that sent me a bunch of material. And after about a month, it became really obvious to me that this guy was not a footnote, obscure footnote in the history of British recording. He was one of the most important figures in the history of recording period. Mm-hmm. And I said to the publisher, look, man, this is ditch my, you know, Barry's bright ideas. This is the story for this mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. And then I spent a, a year researching him and I was fortunate. Um, there's some pretty passionate people involved in that world, in the Joe Meek world. Uh, one of them gave me a spreadsheet with um, more than a thousand recordings listed And he said, I'll fill up 10 CDs full of recordings for you. You just tell me the ones you want. Mm -hmm. I still have that whole collection. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, John Repsch, who wrote the book on Joe Meek, it's not technical at all. He wrote about him just as a human being. Uh, John had had gathered up a whole lot of material that didn't make it into the book because it was too technical. So he had interviews with engineers from Abbey Road and uh, EMI, I mean, various studios, just gold nuggets. And he sent them, he sent me a shoebox with all these cassettes. In and uh, that stuff was incredible. And then I talked to Les Paul and Richie Blackmore and some other um, people. Blackmore was funny because people said, he's impossible to, like, to deal with in an interview and he'll never talk about Joe Meek. And he took my call and all we talked about was Joe Meek for half an hour. He was a lovely man. So, uh, but as we were going along with this thing, more and more information would come in. And basically for me, it was just connecting the dots. Like there was all this information that was out there, disparate information, but nobody had really pulled it together, you know, and, and created a coherent picture of this guy. And there were a lot of misnomers. Like people saw him as a DIY guy, you know, cause he had a studio in his home in the 60s, but his career began in high-level professional studios in England in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And he was making engineering hit recordings for major artists and doing all kinds of revolutionary stuff within the context of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wasn't just some nut, you know, in his bedroom. And uh, he also, like I was talking about before, he invented all kinds of things. 
Anyway, it, right down to the time that we published the book, new information was coming in and I kept having to rewrite whole sections of it because it would just throw new light on what was going on. For example, there was a, there's a, a list of the gear that was sold at auction when he died. And it's a very extensive, you know, line by line, every little thing that he had. Um, so that's a snapshot of one particular period of his gear. And his gear is constantly changing over the years, you know, like with anybody, but he was particularly that way. And then also he modified gear because he was an electronics guy. So the stories are when you go to his studio, all of his compressors and everything that the, the panels were open on him, you know, he's in there like dicking around with it constantly <laughs> wires running across the room. You know, he didn't really solder much of anything. He's twisting up the ends and mm. you know, the guy's crazy. And then he's got uh, nails in the wall where he has created tape loops, you know, edited together loops and he's just hanging them on the wall. There's no reference system. He knows what they are. <laughs> he's doing stuff. That's just like way beyond anybody else. But towards the end, one of the things that had been on that list was called the third man guitar synthesizer. And this is from, you know, 1967. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, I just thought that this was some sort of a mistake or, you know, we could never find any evidence of this thing at all. And then right towards the end, some guy sends me a photograph from Watkins and Charlie Watkins of Wem and Joe had collaborated on this guitar synthesizer and it looks totally futuristic, kind of like the Roland, you know, from the eighties. It's like, like cool little points on it. It's on a stand and then it's got a separate module, almost like the Cynthia high fly or something. And, you know, it's got uh, the controls look like organ controls, like stop controls and things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it looks great. And I thought, okay, this thing is real. Wow. How come we never wow. heard it? And then I talked to somebody who was there. I forget who it was, one of the guys that had interviewed. And he said, yeah, it looked really cool. The reason that you never heard it is because basically all the sounds were sort of different versions of flatulence. <laughs> <laughs> now that's in the book, you know, and there's a picture and everything. And so yeah, it's yeah. just stuff like that happened constantly. But you know, so I, it's 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 the idea that counts, right? And like like it's it's good to fail, and then you know maybe some you know some other people pick up the idea. And in the in the in the late seventies, we had the guitar synthesizer. So just right. you know, right. Yeah. right? Nobody could remember how it worked or anything. You know, like what how they were doing the pitch to voltage or any of that stuff. It just, yeah. but it really looks cool in the photo. I mean, you can see. <laughs> Have you have you have you uh, um, experimented with uh, converting your guitar signal to MIDI? That's funny you would ask that. Um, <laughs> I, I have, but there's a recent. This is a weird story, maybe too weird for your podcast, but I'll, you can stop me. Nothing's too weird. Okay, so um, I have this thing. It's too bad I put it away, or I hold it up to the camera now. Um, it's called a Vocalizer One Thousand. And it was intended as a child's toy in the early 80s. It was done by the guys that went on to found Ensonic. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it was a $99 toy, but made by these genius guys who knew what they were doing. And it's the idea is you 
blow into it or hum into it or sing into it and it translates that into MIDI and then it has built-in like banks of sounds um, and you could get little cartridges and uh, but it has like drum machines and all kinds of stuff built into it. It's a little plastic thing about this big but it's got a MIDI output and it also has a quarter inch jack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I plug a guitar into it and it acts, it'll play all the sounds in there sort of. And then particularly if you, if you put like a compressor and a fuzz on it and turn it way up so that the signal's really consistent mm -hmm. and then turn the guitar volume out. So all you're hearing is the synth parts. It works really well. And that's all over my uh, memory and imagination record. Uh, <laughs> so you can hear it. Uh, but then um, you can, it'll actually track in go out MIDI. So there's no, it's not, you know, the string being converted to a MIDI signal. It's the actual audio that's converting MIDI. So there's no latency. It's zero latency, uh -huh. except for the tiny little bit of latency between the unit, you know, into the computer and the processor. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So um, one of the things that I was doing with it uh, is trying to, um, you know, use it to control things like I have the Vienna Symphonic uh, cellos or, you know, different instruments. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And I had uh, minimal success with that, a little bit of success with it, but not a lot. For a while, I had the Moog guitar, mm -hmm. which is um, this amazing thing. Um, and it's it's not a synthesizer. It's uh, it has this these proprietary pickups that uh, cause uh, infinite sustain, or you can reverse the polarity, and it sucks the sustain out, so you yeah. get like a kind of thing yeah well i thought maybe instead of the fuzz and the um and the uh the compression maybe if i run this thing into this mm -hmm. toy the sound's going to be consistent enough that i can have a sustained note you know mm -hmm. with an instrument like a flute or a cello or something so i hooked it up and it kind of worked a little bit <laughs> and then i put the instrument down on the table without turning the volume down and it started generating random midi information <laughs> and if you turn the knob a little it would change it or if you tapped on it or hit the vibrato bar or whatever and it's generating this midi information and it was still hooked up to the cellos and it's like playing these cello parts <laughs> so i recorded three of them and then mixed them together mm -hmm. you know right left center mm -hmm. <laughs> I played it for people, like I played it for, I'm making a record now with uh, Kevin Kastning, I don't know if you know yeah. Kevin, yeah. musician. he's a classical composer, you know, he's very yeah. astute. I sent it to him, like, what do you think of this? You know, he thought it was an actual composition, you know, that I'd set, somehow played this with a keyboard <laughs> or something. Um, it, it's it's mind-blowing. Uh, there's also a similar thing happened when I was just using the guitar. At one point, I pulled the plug out and dropped it onto a wooden floor and it started generating midi too mm -hmm. i can't remember which one came first there's a piece on uh, stefan's record the outtakes record mm -hmm. called beckoning bells that's uh, this bell sounds and then he's playing a uh, ebo solo over the top of it mm -hmm. that's the sound of the quarter inch jack hitting the wood floor <laughs> generating yeah. random midi parts you know yeah. So I guess you could call that using uh, guitar yeah. MIDI interface. And <laughs> yeah, that, that story wasn't wasn't weird at all. 
That's that's <laughs> the kind of story we like, right? <laughs> and then there's stuff like uh, the record I'd made with uh, Richard Pinas a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a track on there that's, um, I think it's called Zen and Zen. That's got a lot of that uh, guitar to um, uh, the, the Vocalizer 1000 and then out to a trumpet sound. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to do like a, a phony John Hassel thing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. got it running through a harmonizer and, you know, not exactly his sound, but it's, if you're familiar with his sound, you get yeah. the joke. Um, <laughs> so that's an example, you know, but not much guitar with MIDI. It's just so feeble. Um, and the, the tracking is so weird and yeah. you know, they're editing MIDI notes and it's, that's never been something. It was. Ever. It was never for me. It was just. I was, it was the sound was too far removed from from my from mm. the my, the feeling of my finger on the string really, and that's that's why processing the sound rather than going via converting it to a digital format, you know, like and then you know playing a synthesizer, you can kind of create a synthesizer sound just by processing the guitar string, and that means that you're still in t- in, in contact with the source of you know with the vibration of the string and you can kind of modulate it with the fingers and that's that's sort of what would uh, i enjoy so midi midi was never an option for me well, like what you do with the helix you know yeah it's just really organic sounding you know it's very much you know you hear all that articulation and all the things it's not there's no filter in between the yeah what you're yeah doing. and it's actually great that it's it's also great that it's not perfect like you can kind of like the the overtone spectrum of the sounds kind of if you don't hit the note hard enough let's say it gets gets more brittle on top and i think all that kind of like contributes to the to the organic feel of uh yeah 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 no the helix the helix has been has been amazing for me i mean i we we never spoke about it but it's it really has, uh, changed my life completely and i it's still right sitting right here next to me Using so it we'll every day. Back. You'll pay me back for this by doing a um, doing a, a blog post about that. Or, yeah, I would I would love to do that. Yes, yes. <laughs> I remember though when I saw you playing? Uh, I guess it was Stickman uh, at the little theater here that we were talking about, where I wasn't really paying any attention to um, what you were playing through. And the last time I think I had seen you play was with the Crimson Project, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, and at that time, you had bunch of pedals and a laptop and all kinds of stuff going on and uh when we i guess it was either after the show or on a break or something we were having a drink or something and you said yeah i I hear you're working with line six i'm using the helix and i said wait a minute all of that sound that i just heard coming off the stage those amazing sounds you got all that out of the helix (laughs) Yeah. yeah You know, so that was kind of an eye opener for me. Yeah. I went to the office. They said, "Okay, you got to talk to this guy because yeah. he's not like trying to emulate Eric Clapton." No, actually, before before the Helix, it was the the HD five hundred, mm-hmm. which I also liked a lot. Like, very had lots of character. Really, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it's it's funny because I I didn't really want to even wanted to talk about these things, but. Like there's like some something about the Line Six gear that it feels really, and I have to use this word. It feels really dirty, mm. and and it feels it feels great. 
because it's just it's just like like it's not it feels like it's and i'm maybe it's not a compliment but it doesn't feel like it's like it's pre-produced it's it's it has some sort of like realness about it i don't know i don't know why that is it may be just just the interface you know the way that you in like i said it's the way that you interact with the instrument or with the gear that uh, plays a big role in how how we psychologically process the relationship right with <laughs> with what we're using and and um it to me it was always it's always important that what i use is not perfect it 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 needs to allow for for mistakes which then you could say make what is the what is the expression which is the personal thing right you know, all the great analog pedals, the ones that are the classics, I mean, many of them, particularly like electroharmonics, yeah. pedals, they don't work. You know, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. that's why they're great. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, for, for a while I was, I was looking, trying to find one of those uh, synthesizer, uh, uh, what is it called? They microsynth? Have, the microsynth, yeah. Yeah. And then I, I I bought a bought one that is kind of like a new one, like maybe from maybe ten years ago, and it's still good, but it's not the same, right? <laughs> it's right. not the same. <laughs> well, I mean, so much of that old stuff, particularly local harmonics, that from day to day they use different components. You know, it was whatever the cheapest version of the resistor or the transistor, you know, whatever they, you know, they're all different. Yeah. So if you get like, which is kind of funny with this whole you know, pedal thing and. Uh, like, I don't know if you know that I was involved in this uh, pedal book that just came out. Um, oh, I didn't know. Oh, this is, okay, so for all of the pedal and gear people watching this or hearing this, yeah, um, it's called uh, Stompbox 100 Pedals of the World's Greatest Guitarists, I think is the title they wound up with. Mm -hmm. I started out as the uh, editorial director of the book, working with a photographer in New York named Elon uh, Paz, and the I helped to basically we came up with the concept for the book, which was going to be he's taking these sort of museum quality boutique um, photographs of a pedal, and then we would interview a guitar player, and the book's laid out so you have the beautiful photo on one side and you have the interview on the other side. And I did about fourteen interviews or so, and then shortly after that, or at that point, is when I was offered the full-time job, so I couldn't keep it up. And uh, it was passed on to some other folks. And But it was recently published. It's the most amazing book. Um, and then there's a companion volume that the editor, uh, the guy who took it over, Dan Epstein, great editor, writer. Uh, it's just rare, pedal rarities. And all it is, it's just amazing, amazing things that I imagined that I had a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of pedals mm. this stuff most of them i'd never even heard of before much less seen i mean this is such a you know extensive thing anyway what i was getting around to is the of course these things all like a microsynth i don't know what that goes for now probably a thousand bucks you know for the original one mm. and a lot of these things people are it's a they're fetish items you know yeah. so they're buying stuff that i know i remember what they sounded like when they came out they sounded horrible. And now they're just, they're old, you know, they think they're great and they pay all this money for them and stuff. And it's like some sort of magical thing. It's like, no, that pedal sounded like crap back then. And it sounds bad now, but the, um, 
one of the things about it is the if you take like 10 big muffs say mm -hmm. that are all from the same series they're all from like 73 and through the year and you open them up they're all different <laughs> you know, they just they used whatever parts that were the cheapest that they could get, you know, or build it different than Sally or whatever, you know, and they all sound different. It's just, it's amazing. Um, and that's the charm of those things, you know. Yeah. You get one that doesn't, I've got a 73 big muck that doesn't sound like any, you know, others that I've heard. You know, for, for me, for me, it's the pedals or just, just all, you know, like more generally the gear that has a specific, uh, approach to how you control the sound that really makes the difference right it's 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 not so much about the the basic operation of it it's how you could control it or which which par parameters can be controlled with an lfo for example and there's yeah. there's one rare pedal and i wonder if you know uh, i've heard of that it's the peftronics randomatic uh, <laughs> and it's super rare and for some reason uh, Pat Mastelotto he he had one or a friend of his had one and we used it on one of the tuner albums that we produced and one of the on the uh, Tova Escapologist album for those who are interested it's really really wonderful wonderful pedal that has the extremely unique sound and 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 you know it but it's 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 the design of it you know it's not necessarily uh, it's it's the it's not the it's not the materials used. It's like how the idea of the event inventor to give you some sort of extra control, like a random LFO on a short delay, for example. Like what I think that's the, what the randomatic did, right? And uh, so um, yeah, it's 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 just it's just fascinating. And uh, you know, but they, there you go. Like I have. You know, I, I I was always interested in learning to play my instrument better, and I had this vision of like, okay, maybe I'm not good enough, and I, or well, not good enough, but I actually do want to improve, right? But at the same time, I was also always interested in trying new sounds, and uh, just just yesterday, I had uh, I was binging uh, Centrozone, my band Centrozone recordings from '98. Like really, for me, very really old, right? And and they had the uh, the lead sound was from a Boss GD five, but in the in the in the uh, effects loop, I had a, a, a Digitech Talker. If you remember those, and I think they are very rare uh, too now. Um, and that combination just of that that really like uh, early digital Boss uh, with. The talker that was just sounds amazing, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, when you find those things, you know, it's just so. I don't know. I mean, it, there's very few things in life that are better than that. Like on the the hologramophone record, there's a tune called "Warning." Uh -huh. It's this just like ridiculously loud. Um, I think it's an eleven. Uh, it came up with the riff in the middle of the night by accident. I played, I got this great sound with these pedals and I just laid something down to have a record of it before passing out. And then I played it back the next day and it's like, oh, this is an 11. I'll just keep it. <laughs> so, um, but the sound is a, the, the, the fuzz that I like the most and we just emulated it. It's now, it was uh, modeled, it's in the new Helix, mm -hmm. but it's called the ICBM uh, fuzz and it's uh, back in the, 
early 70s, uh, some of the big muffs had ICs instead of transistors. Mm -hmm. and this is an emulation of that, one of those fuzzes. To me, for my thing, you know, it's just for me, um, this is the greatest fuzz I've ever heard. You know, and I have mm -hmm. some, I have a 73 big muff, I've got a Pete Cornish fuzz, you know, I've heard literally hundreds of them because of my job at guitar player, mm -hmm. you know, stuff. This thing is the thing. So I'm running that into um, something called a prunes and custard. It's made by Crowther yeah, Audio. I, I, I have one of those, yeah. <laughs> and so that into a micropog or a mini, whatever it is, the one that's got, um, gives you two octaves down. Mm -hmm. And then that into, I guess that was the sound. Eventually I ran it into a, uh, uh, a Mogerfoger uh, Murph to mm -hmm. get like a step sequencer sound. Mm -hmm. But this is the thing on hologrammatron is without the Murph. But it's when you put those three things together, mm -hmm. the sound is like, it would give Tony Iommi pause. You know, it's just like, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. And I remember when I got that sound, it was like two o'clock in the morning. And it's just the chance combination of these things. And I just, I fell out of my chair laughing, you know, for like, I couldn't stop for like 10 minutes. Like that is the greatest sound <laughs> you know, I've, made, I've ever got. So it's on the record if anybody's interested in hearing that. So it's called Warning. There's also on YouTube, we did a video for that. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael Manitza, again, this guy, he calls himself, um, among other things, the artist of general. And he has a <laughs> costume that's kind of looks a little like the, um, like the, uh, uh, what's that guy's name that was, he was in charge of uh, Coop. Um, something coop anyway dressed up in kind of a military thing like white suit and um it's pretty out there but uh we did this video and mike on the piece mike is uh just improvising talking over it um that's a whole another story how that happened to be but um it's kind of hard to listen to but if you want to hear that sound that's where you could just just put warning it's on youtube and my name okay great 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 yeah um yeah it's interesting you know there you know with with guitar and with music production that there's some people who are going after the this the stuff that sounds good and usually the stuff that sounds good sounds good because you've heard it before right it's mm. that's kind of like the sort psychologically was happening and 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 uh, I was pretty pretty early on I was aware of the fact that if I have the same pedals that everybody else uses it's going to be well I can sound different with my fingers for sure but if I want something else I need to say I need to buy a, a line six pedal and I buy uh, an electro harmonics pedal and I put it in the uh, in the effects loop and that way, by by doing this, by combining different yeah. pieces of gear, you can kind of like create and find your own sound. And that still works nowadays. It still works. And there, you know, because you're there, you have a multitude of uh, combinations that people have not yet used. And uh, so that's that's really um, that's why when I when I start a new recording project, I always try to find a new combination. Like for example, I, I recently I I, uh, I put the Boss GT5 in the in the effects center on my on my Helix, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that I think is probably worth mentioning about the pedals is there is all this, um, obviously, this excitement about vintage pedals and, you know, the prices are going way up and people are collecting them and there's all this rediscovery of these old pedals. But we live in the golden age of pedals. It's the pedals that are being made now that are so incredible. You know, they're just, they're way, they're light years beyond anything that was ever done back in the 70s, you know, let alone the 70s. And um, the combinations, you know, the, the potential to do what you're talking about, it's, it's, it's endless. It's infinite. Yeah. You know, you could probably, some mathematician might take me to task on that and go, no, we can work it out to like 800 billion or something. But no, no, no. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. And then it's just the chance stuff. Like I was describing, you know, that one sound, it's just, it's like, I don't know. They're, they're just, it's the same joy that a child gets discovering something for the first time. You, know, yeah. you just, yeah. Yeah. At yeah. least for me, it, you know, simple yeah. pleasure. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, Barry, I wish we've talked almost two hours and um, uh, let's wrap, wrap it up here. But um, I obviously encourage people to check out your work, uh, music, writing, everything. And you have The Lodge, right, on your on your website. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's, that's a wonderful project. And um, yeah, and I hope I get to see you again uh, in real life sometime like we like if we get to tour we hardly ever tour on the on the west coast so <laughs> but uh yeah i hope that's Play gonna... Hawaii and i'll come see you there yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay barry uh do you want to say anything else or <laughs> only only thanks so much for doing this it was a lot of fun and uh i hope um at least you know i hope we haven't overstayed our welcome with your listeners no, 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 no. It's, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to reconnect with you. And yeah, see you again very soon. All right. Yeah. Take good care. Yeah, Stay bye-bye. Safe. Yeah.